Thanks for listening to our sermons from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources or service information, visit us online at sfchurch.com. Good morning. We are going to continue our series in Matthew chapter 5. Pastor Scott has set the bar quite high as we continue this journey in the Beatitudes. So Matthew chapter 5, if you can turn there with me, that's where we're going to end up. And, and uh, when we study God's Word, it is vitally important to look at all of God's Word and not just what John Piper once called Bible McNuggets, right? Those cute little phrases or verses that we hang on to and we like to put them on the wall. And even though they may com- be completely out of context, we just love the verse, Right? Um, So it's important to understand as Jesus removes himself, Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, now when he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and he sat down and his disciples came to him and he began to teach. So it's important to understand the context of where Jesus is when we hit Matthew chapter 5. Well, what's important to know is what happened in Matthew 4 and 3 and 2 and 1. Chapter 1, chapter 2, very critical, the life, the birth of Jesus. A lot of our Christmas narrative comes from that. Chapter 3, he begins his public ministry. He surrenders to the leadership of of God's plan for his life. He follows the Lord and believers' baptism um, as a demonstration of obedience. He removes himself to the wilderness where he's going to fast and pray, and Satan comes and he tempts him for 40 days. And So here's this process Then he begins his ministry and he calls the disciples to him. He begins to call followers to him. And then we end up in chapter 5 where he has this crowd of people that begin to follow him. Obviously, a lot has happened between chapter 4 and chapter 5. It's not just like, oh, this is the next day. Jesus' public ministry was anywhere from three to three and a half years. The gospel accounts, when you just piece it all together, is like maybe three months. So there's a lot of things that happened that we don't necessarily have recorded for us. But what we do know here is that the context of Jesus removing himself to the mountainside, sitting down and beginning to teach, he has a multitude of people that are following him. And Pastor Scott has told us very clearly, some were enemies, some were just a crowd, some were followers. There's two distinct people in this audience, I believe, that are listening very carefully to Jesus, sort of the pros and the cons. They're the Pharisees and the disciples, because the people at this point in time were were somewhat under religious persecution. The Pharisees uh, were teaching that righteousness is an external thing. It's all the things that you do. You may have grown up in this kind of a home, right? Um, There's things we do and we don't do. We don't understand why. We just know it's about the rules. Jesus teaches us that rules without relationship lead to rebellion. But some of us have come up with that whole idea that, well, there's certain things I do, and God's going to be pleased with me when I do these things or when I don't do these things. That's what the Pharisees were doing to the people, and so they should have been loving the people. They should have been pointing people to God. Instead, they they were beating the people down with all the rules and all the instruction and all the information, and they were overloading the people. Jesus came, and he said, hey, it's time for a a dialogue shift, a, a paradigm shift, if you would. Jesus was going to turn the dialogue from external to internal. So the Pharisees, who were all about righteousness, being external, uh, it's a matter of obeying the rules, it's a matter of obeying the regulations. Righteousness could be measured by how much you pray, by how much you give, by uh, how much you fast or how often you fast. And so in these Beatitudes, as they're called in Matthew 5, 
the pictures of the believers that Jesus begins to describe Christian character and what it looks like when it's not external, but it becomes internal. It's not simply information, as the Pharisees were teaching, but it's about transformation. It was an invitation that God extended to the disciples, not simply the information that was being passed along. Uh, I love the theologian Dr. R.C. Sproul once said, Satan could make an A in my systematic theology course. He knows the information, and he knows that the information is true. That may be you this morning. You may have tons of information, and you may have lived a, a really decent life up to this point, doing your very best. I don't know about you, but a lot of churches, and I think the American church has gotten it so wrong through the years, we've tried to do well to honor God, but, but we've made it much about the rules, right? I don't smoke or drink or dance or chew or go with girls that do, right? I mean, all the rules, all the things that, hey, if I can only try to do the right things and not do the wrong things, but we're missing the point. And so Jesus changes the dialogue. And this crowd, as he removes himself to the mountainside, the crowd was full of people with lots of information. But Jesus says, look, it's not about information. It's about this invitation that I've extended. Because right before our text this morning, he extends an invitation. Look with me. Just back up. Flip back a page or just look at the screen. Matthew chapter 4, verse 18 says this. While, G while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he, that's Jesus, saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea. And if you're wondering why, for they were fishermen. Just so you're not confused. Why were they throwing a net? Well, they're fishermen, and Jesus sees them. Verse 19, and he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Now, I want you to see the invitation, and I want you to see the implied change that's going to take place. Jesus extended the invitation, which was what? Come and follow. But then he said, I'm not going to leave you the way you are. I will make you fishers of men. He says, look, if you're coming to follow me, your life's not going to be the same. You're going to go through a progressive change, and I'm going to make you the person that I've created me to be. And so Jesus, as he sits down, these are the guys he's speaking with. Jesus extended this invitation to come and follow. He clearly stated that he was going to change them, that he was going to transform their lives. He was going to change their very existence. He was going to give them a new purpose for why you get out of bed in the morning. And he gave them a description. Come follow me, invitation, description, I will make you fishers of men. I'm going to change you. I'm going to make you something new, something fresh, and I'm going to do it from the inside out. So in chapter 5, as we dive into this process, Jesus is speaking to these disciples. Now, there was a host of people, thousands of people had, had begun to follow Jesus through his life and his ministry, but why do we know about these disciples? Why is the scripture so specific about disciples? Because I believe you can be affiliated with Jesus, but not be activated as a disciple. Many of you are affiliated with a church, whether it's Southbridge or something else. And you may be affiliated, but you're not activated. You have information, but you've never received the invitation to come and follow and let me change you. And so Jesus was very intentional of what he did with these disciples. Why? Because he knew he was going to take 12 guys for three years and radically change the world. 
You and I are sitting in this place as followers of Jesus Christ because his methodology worked. He could have just kept teaching the crowd over and over and over in hopes that someone is going to get it, but Jesus intentionally chose for himself 12, and he deeply invested in their life as a disciple. And he took those 12 guys for three years, and he poured his life into them. And there were times that he would remove himself from the multitudes, and you see it over and over. Jesus teaches a parable, and then later it says the disciples came, and they said, Lord, tell us what that parable meant. And he was explaining. He was teaching them. He was, in, he was spending very intentional time with his disciples because he was equipping them, and he was training them. There's a reason that Jesus did it with a few and not everybody. Sometimes in church life, and this is a hard principle for us to embrace at times, everything is not for everybody. Yes, the gospel is for everybody. We're going to proclaim the gospel, the love, and the grace and mercy of Jesus to everybody that we come in contact with. But I know that for me to be effective, I have to model what Jesus did. And Jesus intentionally would separate himself from the multitudes or the crowds, and he would deeply invest and pour his life into a few. Why? It's the, it's the principle of multiplication. Multiplication is a powerful tool. And so that's what Jesus was doing. So it's important to know that as Jesus withdrew, yes, people followed him and he began to teach. But I think even the, the idea that he removed himself to the mountainside and it says that his disciples came to him, it's important to realize that he's specifically, I think, looking at his disciples and he's teaching them these principles. But while he's doing it, there's others that are overhearing the conversation because these Pharisees and these scribes who believe it was all external were, were very threatened at this point in time. And they want to know who is this man who is Jesus? Did it work? What kind of teacher was Jesus? Well, let me just jump to the end of this message that Jesus is preaching that begins here in Matthew 5 to Matthew chapter 7. In verse 28, you can see it on the screen or flip in your Bible. Verse 28, and when Jesus finished these sayings, in other words, when he finished the message that we're, we're starting right now, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. Something unique in what Jesus was saying that was radically different, diametrically opposed to what they were being taught by the religious leaders of their time. Much like us as we jump into church life and we want to follow Jesus and yet everything the world tells us is diametrically opposed to what the Word of God says. So we have a choice. Do I follow Jesus or do I follow the ways of the world? That's what Jesus is speaking about here in Matthew chapter 5. He begins the sermon with an outline. That's what the Beatitudes are. They're really kind of a simple outline. He says, here's my main points, and over the next couple of chapters, I'm going to expound on these a little bit more. I'm going to talk more about these things. But he gives us these, these Beatitudes. The Beatitude is just a, a Latin word for blessing. That's how it's interpreted Pastor Scott has just unpacked this beautifully, right? The word makarios, it, it means a deep abiding joy that goes beyond the circumstances of life. To be blessed, to be happy, it's an assurance based on the nature and character of God. But it's also a progression. 
See, Jesus realized that when we come to know him, just as the disciples, there's a progression of growth that you go through. You don't come to Jesus and all of a sudden, man, you're just spiritually mature in, in every way of your life because there's a progression and so there's a deep dependence on Jesus. And as, as we grow as disciples, we learn from him as he models and he demonstrates truth. That's what the disciples were doing in the presence of Jesus. They were walking with him. They were learning from him. They experienced these things as Jesus invited them into aspects of ministry and as he would teach them and as he would equip them. He provides opportunity for them to then turn around and do ministry and, and to experience those things and begin to put it into practice what they're learning and ultimately then to do what? To release them to radically change the world as we know it through the hope of Jesus. And so these four uh, beatitudes that we've covered so far, Pastor Scott unpacked wonderfully, are, are vertical in nature. In other words, they deal with my relationship with God. And now Jesus turns a corner, right? It's a, it's a turn in the pathway. We've been looking at the pathway to true happiness. Well, that pathway takes a little bit of a turn because as Jesus has been talking first, these four deal vertically with my relationship with God. Now he turns the table and he says, now the pathway goes vertical or horizontal, right? I begin to deal with people. So let's look at this because Jesus always deals with the heart. I love it that, that he understands the heart, the Bible says, is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Again, opposed to culture, where a culture says, hey, just follow your heart. Jesus says, don't follow your heart, because your heart is sinful, it's deceitful, it's wicked, right? But diametrically opposed, our heart is, is so broken that Jesus came and he said, we need relationship. I'm here to fix what is broken, and we need relationship with the God that created us, the God that pursues us with his love and grace. He also understands completely that we are incapable of demonstrating his love to others because of our sinfulness. And so he has to put these things in proper order. And being the master teacher that Jesus is, very unlike me, he starts with a very positive contrast. I would have blasted the Pharisees right off the bat. I would have said, don't follow these guys. They're a bunch of morons. They're deceiving you. They're leading you the wrong way. Jesus didn't do that, which again, I think just shows his incredible character, right? He, he didn't start with negative criticism of the scribes and the Pharisees. He began with a contrast to what they were being told, and he gave them positive emphasis, get this, on righteous character. In other words, not the external. He, he's not talking about prayer and fasting and giving. He's talking about his nature and character. And I don't think there's any place in God's word where we see the nature and character of Jesus Christ more on display than in the Beatitudes. We see the ethical moral standards that he emanates, that he passes on to us in these verses. And Jesus is saying, look, all this stuff is going to come from within you, not from outside. It's not about all the things you do. It's not about how often you go to church or how often you take the Lord's Supper or if you even do take the Lord's Supper. It's not about whether you've been baptized. It's not about all these external things, right? The righteousness is going to come from within because I'm going to take up residence and I'm going to change you from the inside out. That's radically different for these guys. And so he brings this aspect to life that as a believer, we're allowing Christ to do these things in us. These beatitudes are coming from inside. 
He's basically saying, look, as a follower, when you surrender, because that's what he's invited the disciples to do, lay down your nets, abandon everything, repent, turn, walk away from all that, follow Jesus. Now he's saying, as a follower, I'm going to tell you how you are absolutely free to live the life that I've created you to be. And in that freedom, you're going to experience happiness or blessing. So let's just review where we've been the last couple of weeks, right? In chapter 5, verse 3. It simply says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Poor in spirit. It simply means a deep dependence, a surrender and reliance on Jesus Christ. This is where the journey begins. This is where it began for these disciples in chapter 4. Come, follow me. Abandon your profession. Abandon your family. Matter of fact, Matthew 4, after we see the first two disciples, it says he went on. He saw two other brothers. And they immediately left their father and left his business, and they followed Jesus. Have you just left everything? And I'm not saying you have to quit your job, but, but are you living in a complete dependence on Jesus, saying, God, my life is not my own. I've surrendered my will, my purpose, my identity to you. Forgive me, make me the person you want me to be. That, that's what he's inviting us to do. To be poor in spirit is to realize that I have a deep dependence on Jesus Christ. I need to surrender to him. I need to be completely reliant on Jesus. I need to empty me of myself so that I can take on more of you. I need to repent and turn from my sin so that I can follow you. See, sometimes we want to follow Jesus, but we want to drag all our stuff with us. Jesus is saying you can't do that. You can't just say, oh yeah, Jesus, I'm going to follow you, and then bring all our baggage. Wait, Jesus, I got a U-Haul truck loaded with all my stuff. All my emotion, all my stuff. You know, Jesus says, no, surrender it all. Deep dependence on me and follow. But then he says, happy are the sad, right? Those who mourn. And I love Pastor Scott's message last week. This is not about grief as much as physical grief or loss as it is grieving the Holy Spirit of God. I am grieved over my sin because I realize my sin grieves the heart of God. Have you ever just grieved over your sin? Have you ever just been so broken because of your sin? Have you ever come to that place of going, man, I'm not even really sure I'm a Christian because I continue to sin? And you're just so burdened and you you grieve. Well, that's what he's saying, right? Happy, blessed are you. When you come to the place that your sin hurts because you realize you're grieving the heart of God. He says, happy are the selfless or the meek. I love when Pastor Scott last week, he, he unpacked this. It's not about weak, it's meek. There's a difference between weakness and meekness. Jesus was not weak by any stretch of the imagination. I believe Jesus was one of the most manly men that ever lived. And yes, there was a point in time without sin, he, he took on the holiness, righteousness of God, and yet he flipped some tables and he grabbed a whip and he whooped on some dudes. He was not weak, but he was meek. He was selfless. Verse 6, happy are the hungry, right? Those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. A good indication here is, let me just ask you a very simple question. Have you hungered and thirsted for the Word of God this week? 
Have you picked up your Bible since last Sunday morning and just dove into the Word of God and said, God, I am hungry and thirsty to know your truth, to know you, and you are revealing yourself to me through the Word of God. So therefore, God, I'm going to grab the Word and I'm going to dive in and I'm going to explore everything that there is. That's a good indication of whether you're hungering and thirsting after righteousness. Are you seeking the heart and the face and the presence of God? So these are all horizontal in nature. These deal with my relationship with God. So here Jesus turns the corner, and he shifts from the vertical to the horizontal. Look with me at verse 7. He simply says, blessed are the merciful, for they will show mercy. So happy or absolutely content beyond life circumstances are the merciful. What's he saying? He's simply saying that as recipients of God's mercy and part of his kingdom, it implies that we are objects of mercy. We need mercy. And if you're sitting here today thinking, man, somehow I'm pretty really good and and God's kind of lucky to have me, you miss the point of God's mercy. When we come to the place of realizing there is not a reason in the world that God should extend his love to me, Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his own love for me even while I was still a sinner. Christ died for me. That's mercy. And as a recipient of that mercy, I then become a reflection of that mercy. When you and I are offended or broken or something and we don't extend mercy, we're cheapening God's mercy. We cheapen his work on the cross because as a recipient of his mercy, I am obligated to extend that mercy to other people. Please don't think this is easy. It's not. But it only comes from those that are poor in spirit, those who mourn over their sin, those who are selfless and meek and empty themselves, and those who are hunger and thirst after righteousness. This then becomes a product of my relationship with Christ. Kingdom servants, we understand from the text, must reflect the heart of their king. When we take on the relationship with Jesus Christ, he changes us. He makes us something different. And we have to begin to take on his heart, and his heart is merciful. His heart is compassionate. And as recipients of this mercy, we must in turn be merciful or others-oriented, We begin to realize that God loved me with his mercy, but you know what? He also loved you with his mercy, and you with his mercy, and you with his mercy. Recently, Leslie and I were walking through the beautiful downtown of Chicago, Illinois, and and I just told her, I said, you know, I said, in a city that is this compact with so many people, it somehow moves me more with the mercy and the grace of God to understand my mission. I don't know if it's just the, the fact that there's thousands of people but I'm just walking down State Street, that great street, and I'm looking at people, and I'm looking them in the eye, and that little phrase came to mind, you've never looked someone in the eye that Jesus didn't die for. And in that moment, my heart was moved with mercy and compassion. And I was overwhelmed to the point of just, man, I just want to stop everybody that I see right now. I was, I was on a mission to get Garrett's popcorn and Fannie Mae candy, but, but I, was, I was moved because I'm thinking every one of these people Jesus died for. And because he extended me mercy, I am obligated as a child of the king to reflect in his mercy and to offer mercy. And so it has to do with salvation. It also has to do with just reparation of relationships because we've received it in such abundance 
we have to dispense it abundantly. But then he goes on in verse 8, he says, happy are the pure in heart. Happy are the pure in heart, for they will see God. The, the term that Matthew uses here is, is an interesting term because it can, it can be used as, as literal physical cleanness to, to clean an object. But most often in Scripture, it really has to do with, with moral cleanness or purity. It's the same word that we see in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4, where, where the writer says, let marriage be held in honor above all and let the marriage bed be pure. So when you look at, at purity, it's a simple and a helpful way of looking at the word is to realize that it implies an absence of impurity. See, if I'm going to have a right relationship with my wife in a marriage relationship, I can't have anything impure, right? It literally means no foreign element. Absence of impurity. It implies singleness of purpose, without distraction, holiness, to be sanctified. We want to come up with a list of rules and say, oh, if I'm going to be pure, then I, I, sh I shouldn't do these things. And you're absolutely right. There are things that we shouldn't do in our culture. There are things we should abstain from because I don't want that impurity messing with my purity. If you're like most American homes right now, you have about 6,000 channels on your TV. And most of those are absolutely useless from a purity perspective. I can't even watch Andy Griffith without the commercials being offensive to me. But a friend of mine very wisely said one time, he said, if Satan can get us to laugh at sin, he's won the battle. Many of us laugh at sin that is impure, that is a distraction to my relationship with God. And if I were honest before God, I would look at the stuff in my life and say, this is not worth the battle. I want to protect my eyes. I want to protect my ears. I want to protect my mind. I want to protect my heart. Why? Because I love Jesus and I love my wife. And there are certain things that we won't do, and there are certain places we won't go, and there are certain types of movies that we will not see. Why? Because I don't need it. I don't need the distraction or the impurity either in my relationship with my Savior or in my relationship with my wife or friends and family. Why do I want to bring the impurity into the pure? I want to protect my heart and life. Why? Because God has set me apart. He has sanctified me. He's, he's given me his purity, and he calls me to live a life that is pure. A couple decades ago, I uh, just thought of, of this process of what it means to be a child of God and, and the word sanctified. See, as children of God, we're sanctified. That, that word says that, that we are set apart for God's exclusive use. That's, that's what this is carrying, this idea. That we're to be holy, we're to be righteous, we're to be sanctified. That it, it implies this singleness of purpose. And as a child of God, you have a single purpose, and that is to live a life that's honoring to Jesus Christ. And so God gave me this word picture a number of years ago, and I'm going to share it with you, and I hope that if nothing else this morning, you're going to walk out with a whole new perspective on your life tomorrow morning. This is a toothbrush. Anybody own one of these? If, if your hand's not up, I'm going to just ask your neighbor to say, 
let me go get you one, okay? All right, so let me just ask you a question. What color is your toothbrush? Come on, say it out loud. White. Who wears a white toothbrush? <laughs> I hope you have one of these. This, this is brand new, not used. This is not mine because mine is at home, safely guarded and protected from any impurities. Are you with me? So I brought another one. Now, my toothbrush for probably the last 20 plus years, every day of my life has served as a simple reminder that I am sanctified, I am set apart for God's exclusive use. Nobody uses my toothbrush but me, at least that I know of. (laughs) Mine is orange. And you know, hey, I grew up, three kids, lots of people running around, don't mess with my toothbrush. If you're missing a toothbrush, go get your own toothbrush, but don't mess with my toothbrush. Am I, am, is anybody with me here? Amen. If you're the one in the room that like, oh, I don't mind sharing my toothbrush, there's something wrong with you. I'm just saying right now. Because my toothbrush is sanctified. It is set apart for my exclusive use. And I make sure that Leslie knows when I get a new one, baby, my toothbrush is orange. That's not to be used on Rusty the dog, Okay. No, I'm not sharing that. But there comes a point where it's like, okay, I'm getting a new one, my orange one. Do whatever you do with that. You know, clean the faucets or clean the tires on the car or brush the dog's teeth or something. But it's no longer mine. It's no longer sanctified and set apart for me. Because I have a new one that is sanctified and set apart. And that's just kind of my daily reminder of the fact that God calls me to a life of purity. And that my life is to be set apart. Now, does this mean I'm perfect? Please, no. Okay? You can catch my wife and you can ask her and she can give you the the list of things by which I fail. I never want to ever come to the place of going, oh yeah, man, I got it all together. None of us get there. That's why Jesus says this is a progression of growth. But let me me hopefully say that I am better today than I was a year ago or 10 years ago or 20 years ago. Why? Because I am on this progression of growth, dependence, sadness and grief over my sin, selflessness, emptying myself, becoming meek, hungering and thirsting after righteousness. There's this progression of growth by which I am growing to be the man that God created me to be. And in that process, I I learn to put away impure things and protect my heart, protect my mind, protect my ears from the things that, that will be a distraction to me. But see, this quality is a natural byproduct, that's what Jesus is saying, of all the other things that we've experienced so far. He's saying, look, purity of heart is not manufactured by me. That would be external. That would be the Pharisees going, oh, look, you got to do this, do this, do this. Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. When we're looking at it from an external perspective, we miss the point that God is changing us from the inside out. This Purity is granted by the God of mercy. This purity is granted to those who mourn their spiritual bankruptcy and grieve over their sin. It's granted to the one who hungers and thirsts after righteousness. It is granted to those who find themselves completely dependent of God. You see the progression? First, I fall deeply and passionately in love with Jesus, learning to give myself over in daily dependence. And then I grow. 
I begin to weep over my sin. I begin to hunger and thirst for righteousness, which does what? Causes me to realize my sin. So now I grieve more over my sin, which causes me to do what? Deeper dependence on God to give that sin over to Christ. And as I'm growing in that cyclical process, guess what? I come to mercy. I come to purity. And I begin to extend these things. Why? Because God's growing me from the inside out. That's what he's telling the disciples. Guys, I'm changing you. Get ready because we're on a journey and I'm going to change you. And then he goes on in verse 9 and he says, blessed or happy are the peacemakers. You see, when we begin to get to that place where we are growing in our relationship with Christ, we get to this place of being a peacemaker because Jesus came to allow us to have peace with God. Our sin separates us from God. But Jesus said, man, I've come to make peace between you and your heavenly Father. I've come to be that bridge that is going to help you and allow you to have a relationship with the God that loves you. And, and see, peace is first and foundationally an internal and spiritual thing, not an external thing. It's not primarily physical. It's not primarily military. It's not primarily a political thing. It is first and foremost an issue of the heart. Am I at peace with God? If I'm at peace with God, I can be at peace with others. Why? Because I'm not dependent on you. I'm dependent on Christ. Peace for the nations flows from peace in the hearts of individuals because peacemakers are not power brokers. Peacemakers are people lovers. You and I are called to be people lovers, not weak, but meek. Jesus came to restore this relationship. He came to fix what was broken in me and restore me to re relationship with God. To create a way for me and you to be restored into a right relationship with our Heavenly Father or to have peace with God. So what am I called to do? I'm invited to God's mission because He's going to change me to extend peace to other people. Personally, relationally, horizontally, vertically. I become a peacemaker because I'm part of God's kingdom. I love this verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 as Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. Look what he says. He says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. See, when we become children of God, we become ambassadors for God. We become a reflection and a revelation of the character and nature of God. Therefore, what? Mercy, peace, purity. We become a reflection of who he is. And you are an ambassador for Christ. And let me tell you this. Ambassadors, you're an ambassador here, and you're an ambassador when you leave here. Some, some of you are visiting us for the first time this morning. Thank you for being here. To the rest of us, we are ambassadors for Christ to those individuals. So if you're a guest here this morning, I'm not going to ask you to stand or anything, but, but if someone offended you this morning, maybe you came in and sat down and they walked in and looked at you and said, hey, you're in my seat. Would you identify that person right now? <laughs> Would you do a little police sketch or maybe grab your phone and snap a picture? And would you give it to me after the service? And I'm serious. Because I will go to that person and I will ask one key question. Do you know for certain you've come to the place you've trusted Jesus Christ with your life? And if they tell me yes, then I will say, bam, you are called to a higher standard because you are an ambassador for Jesus Christ. And for you to offend somebody that walked on this campus, shame on you. 
On the other hand, if you look at me and go, no, no, I, I don't want anything to do with Jesus, I'm going to go, okay, great, I'm going to pray for you, I'm going to love you. Let me tell you how much he really cares for you. You see, the difference in a confession with Jesus Christ is that we become his ambassadors. Whether you're here and you were the person who like whipped in front of somebody and stole the parking spot, right? Or when you leave here, your waitresses, your mechanics, the people you work with, the people on the other side of the cubicle, you are an ambassador for Christ. You are a reflection and a revelation of his mercy, his trust, his goodness, his purity. You are an ambassador for Christ. And I would love to say that I get all this right, and I don't, okay? Um, so let's just, let's be really careful, right? We're, we're never going to be perfect in this process of carrying this out, but, but to understand that we are peacemakers, we are God's ambassadors to a lost and dying world. When you and I surrender our lives to God through the person and work of Christ, God takes that very, very seriously, and you become a kingdom bearer of his goodness. You become a, a kingdom bearer of all of his qualities and all of his characteristics, you begin to take on his character. Jesus is telling him, you begin to take on my purpose. You begin to take on my mission. Why? Because I'm going to make you, I'm going to transform you, I'm going to change you into what? Fishers of men. I'm inviting you into my mission. We're part of that process. You become a revelation of his ethical and moral standards. But if you're putting it on from the outside, you miss the heart of Jesus. When you allow him to do it from the inside, you discover the heart of Jesus. Why? Because you become blessed. You become happy in its full meaning of the word. See, the things you receive from God, you pass on to other people. You received his mercy. You didn't deserve that. You received his peace. You didn't deserve that. You received his purity and his forgiveness. You didn't deserve that. You received his grace. You didn't deserve that. And it's because we receive it when we don't deserve it, we are obligated by Christ's command to freely and abundantly give it away. When we don't, we're not walking in fellowship with Christ. Pastor and author Kenny Luck says this, I love this. He says, when we have an experience, an encounter like that, like coming to know Jesus, and we don't give it away, God has feelings about that. You see, it grieves God's heart when a grace-receiving sinner becomes an anger-delivering destroyer. You see, in any aspect of our life, when we are not just being a reflection and a revelation of the nature and character of God, it grieves God's heart. So what do we do? We back up, right? Ask for forgiveness, dive into his word, grieve our sin, ask for forgiveness, grow in him, hunger and thirst after righteousness, get back in the saddle. There's a progressive process that Jesus invites us to grow in him. So the Sermon on the Mount, as we know it here, is for men and women who have chosen to be the disciples of Jesus, who have freely submitted themselves. And throughout his ministry, Jesus repeatedly explains to his disciples what living as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven is all about. And for us, living in the kingdom means abandoning the ways of, of the world that, that we tend to adopt that are diametrically opposed to 
to Christ's kingdom. That's why we're talking about right living in an upside-down world. These ideas are radically different than the world that we live in. So my question to you today is, are you a Pharisee? Are, are you sort of putting on the righteousness from the outside? Jesus extends an invitation. He says, come and follow. I love you. Come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Have you received that invitation? Are you growing in a relationship with Christ? Can, can you look on this progressive process and see, well, yeah, I'm, I'm growing. Here's, here's where I'm growing. I'm not asking for perfection. I'm asking for progression in the process.